Good afternoon, brethren, and greetings from the great white north, that is North Carolina, Charlotte to be specific, speaking here on a cold, wintry day. It is a day that one day from now is a very significant day, because 69 years ago, something very critical in American history took place. The day afterwards, the president, who at the time was Franklin D. Roosevelt, gave an address to the nation. And in that address, he stated, Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which shall live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval forces of the Empire of Japan. The Japanese began a war that would last for three and one-half years. They attacked us unprovoked, and that war went on for three and a half years. But in the end, after that three and a half years period, the words that the president spoke to this nation at the end of that same address came to pass, because he said in that address at the end, with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounded determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us, God. And we did gain the inevitable triumph. Tens of thousands of American and Japanese, Australians, and other nations of peoples died in that conflict. But three and a half years later, on August 6th of 1945, the United States delivered a package to Japan. That package was nicknamed Little Boy, and it was an atomic bomb, a weapon of massive destruction, unparalleled at that time. The world had never seen that kind of firepower used. After the bomb was unleashed, the sky above Hiroshima, where that bomb was dropped, grew bright in a violent flash. My God, what have we done, wrote co-pilot Robert Lewis in his flight log. Nearly 70,000 people were estimated to have died in the initial blast. And over a period of years from the fallout of that blast and the injuries that were sustained by it, another 70,000 to 100,000 people died as well. It was a terrible and bitter end to a long struggle. Why did this have to happen? Was there no alternative? Was there nothing else that this nation could have done to bring that war to an end? It seemed to be going on and on relentlessly. But there was an alternative. The Japanese people were given an alternative to end that war. On July 26, 1945, the United States, Britain, and China had given them an alternative. It was in a statement that they released to the Japanese called the Potsdam Declaration, and it announced the terms for Japan to surrender and not have to go through any more war and devastation. The end of that declaration stated, in, in declaring that they had to surrender, it said that we will not deviate from them, that is, the terms of the surrender, there are no alternatives. We shall brook no delay. 
But the Japanese had refused to accept that declaration and the terms of it. And so, on August 6th, 1945, they paid the price. They paid a heavy price. The Americans dropped that bomb on Hiroshima and created the devastation, killing tens of thousands of people, completely demolishing a large part of Hiroshima. The officials determined that the absolute total destruction, that is of everything, buildings, plants, everything, was a radius of one mile. An entire area, one minute, there were buildings and people and cars. The next minute, nothing. Everything was gone. The pictures and the videos that have been shown of what that city looked like after that time show the absolute utter devastation that took place in that city. It is estimated that 69% of the buildings in that entire city were destroyed in the blast and that some 30% of the population of Hiroshima were killed immediately and another 70,000 were injured and as I said tens of thousands were to die later on as a result of that bomb. Shortly after the bomb was dropped, President Harry Truman released a statement telling the world, and specifically Japan, what had happened. And I want to read you some excerpts from that. He wrote, 16 hours ago, an American plane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb had more than 20,000 tons of TNT. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We are now prepared to obliterate more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have above ground in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, and their communications. Let there be no mistake. We shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. It was to spare the Japanese people from utter de destruction that the ultimatum of July 26th was issued at Potsdam. Their leaders promptly rejected that ultimatum. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a reign of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on the earth. Absolute massive firepower. Despite the massive damage and loss of lives and the warning that President Truman gave them the Japanese didn't react they were slow to react they considered it but they did nothing they didn't respond and so it was that three days later on August 9th little boys big brother fat man as they termed it was dropped on the city of Nagasaki the resulting explosion had a blast yield equivalent to 21 kilotons of TNT. The explosion generated heat estimated at 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit. 7,000 degrees. Anything in its path was just vaporized, gone from that heat. And it says that the winds that were generated by it were estimated to have been up to 624 miles per hour. A hurricane is 80 miles an hour and up. This wind alone would have destroyed and killed much. 
It was a massive explosion. Casualty estimates from this bomb initially ranged from 40 to 75,000 people that were killed. But the total deaths by the end of 1945 might have reached 80,000, and many others died later as a result of it. Once again, the Japanese paid a terrible price. They were given an opportunity. They were told, here's your opportunity. You have a way out. Take it, please. But they didn't do it. They were a proud people. They didn't want to give in. They didn't want to surrender. But finally, after this second bomb was dropped, they had to do the unthinkable. They realized that resistance was futile. There was no way that they could continue on. They were outgunned and they were outmanned. And so they finally did surrender. And so it was on, on September 2nd that they signed the Japanese, I'm sorry, the Japanese instrument of surrender on the deck of the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. Let me read you a portion of that. We hereby proclaim the unconditional surrender to the Allied powers of the Japanese Imperial General Headquarters and all of the Japanese armed forces and all armed forces under Japanese control wherever situated. We hereby command all Japanese forces, whether situated in the Japanese people to the cease and the Japanese people to cease hostilities forthwith to preserve and save from damage all ships, aircraft, and military and civil property, and to comply with all requirements which may be imposed by the supreme commander of the Allied powers or by agencies of the Japanese government at his direction. We hereby command the Japanese Imperial General Headquarters to issue at once orders to the commanders of all Japanese forces and all forces under Japanese control, wherever situated, to surrender unconditionally themselves and all forces under their control. The Japanese people were a proud people, very proud people. That's why they didn't want to surrender but they were finally humiliated and brought to their knees and forced to surrender, or they knew that their nation would be wiped out. They saw the power that was, that was going to be unleashed upon them, a terrible power, and so they surrendered, and it was an unconditional surrender. So now that we've had a little history lesson, what does this have to do with you and me today? What is it that we can learn from this? How can we move forward in our lives? A few months ago, we kept the Feast of Trumpets. This is a day that pictures the coming of Jesus Christ when all nations of the earth are going to have to surrender unconditionally. Jesus Christ is going to return as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we look forward to and pray that day comes soon. A wonderful time that we have to look forward to. But what we're doing here today as Christians who God has called out of this world is to look at our lives and make sure that when that day does come, when the fulfillment of that day comes and when Jesus Christ returns, that we are the ones that are there with him enforcing this unconditional surrender. And we're not the ones on earth that are having to do the unconditional surrender. That's what we are called to do. 
But in order for us to be a part of his family, to be there at his side at that time, we have to, in this day, in this age, in our lives now, unconditionally surrender our lives to the great God and his son, Jesus Christ. And this is what I'm going to focus my sermon on today. And the title of my sermon is Unconditional Surrender. This is one of the most basic and fundamental things that we have to learn to do in our lives as Christians. And yet it is something that we fail to do regularly because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Have we not? God's word tells us that. And I think if you are true to yourself, you will know that. You will understand that. We understand that we have sinned. We will continue to sin. Hopefully we will do it less as our lives go forward and as we try to do better. But we are all going to make mistakes. And it is every time that we sin, that we go against our great God and what he has told us to do, that we fail to obey him, that we break the terms of that unconditional surrender that we have been called to. When we were baptized, we made a contract with our God. We told him, our life is no longer mine. It is yours. I give my life to you. And as part of that contract, we have said, we love you and we will obey you. Let's review that. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Here we see the speech that Peter gave, the sermon he gave, if you want to call it. There, when God's Holy Spirit was poured out upon all of the people, that would say all of the people, but many people that were gathered there together. And so, at the end of that speech, in verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children, who are, who all, all who are afar off, as many as our Lord will call. They were given God's Holy Spirit at baptism, just as those of us who have been baptized receive that spirit if we truly surrendered to God. We did surrender our lives to God, and we gave that unconditional surrender. But as I said, we continue to break the terms of that surrender. And that is what we have to learn not to do. That is what we have to focus on not doing on living our lives in a way that is pleasing to God, in obeying him and loving him. As he said here, that this is done to as many as God will call. We were called and chosen specifically. As Christ said in John, or I'm sorry, in uh, yeah, John 6, 44, no man can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. God specifically chose each of us. And he has given us this opportunity to be a part of the first fruits of his family. But in order to be there in that family, we have got to be willing to put our lives in his hands and unconditionally surrender ourselves to him. 
A lot of Christians in the world believe that, well, what's the big deal? All you have to do is love Jesus. Is that all you need? Just to love Jesus? Oh, I love Jesus. Just get that warm, fuzzy feeling inside. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves us. God loves us. That's all you have to know. I think we all realize that there's a lot more than our, in our calling than that. And I think that Peter summed it up when he said, repent and be baptized. He didn't say, get that warm, fuzzy feeling, mouth the words, I love Jesus, and that's all. He said, repent and be baptized. And so we have to repent. And what does repentance really require of us? What is it that we have to do in order to have true repentance to our great God? It requires the, th- the same thing that was required of those Japanese back in 1945. Unconditional surrender of our lives. Unconditional. No conditions attached at all whatsoever. If we don't surrender our lives and love our great God to obeying him and doing all he said, we cannot be a part of his family. In Matthew 26, Jesus was asked in verse 36, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And what did Jesus answer? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Your mind. If we don't love God with every bit of our soul and being, we are not going to surrender ourselves to him. And part of that love is obeying him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Very clear, to the point. Christianity out there in the world today doesn't believe in that. All you have to do is love Jesus. They don't understand what love for Jesus is. They don't understand that if you really love Jesus, you will obey him. You will obey his words. The only way we can truly love him and love God is by unconditionally surrendering our lives to him. And that requires us to do something that as human beings, we all have a very difficult time doing. Something that does not come naturally. One little word. It's called change. It requires us to change. To change the way we act. To change the things we say. To change the things we do. And to change the very way we think. Our mind. It requires change. Mr. John O'Gwen wrote in the Tomorrow's World, May, June 2001 issue, an article entitled, Can You Really Change Your Life? And I think he made a wonderful point here. Let me quote what he wrote. To really change your life, the starting point, not the whole thing, but the starting point is to accept that you cannot. Did you hear that right? To really change your life, the starting point is to accept that you can't. You cannot do it. But God can. 
Repentance involves a mindset of unconditional surrender to God. A mindset, a way of thinking of our life and our will. We must come to God acknowledging our sin with no excuses and recognizing our utter lack of self-sufficiency to transform ourselves. Once again, we have to look to God. We can't change ourselves, but he can change us. Change does not come easily or naturally. It isn't something people like. We all like to feel comfortable and we get in a routine of doing things day by day. You get up, you do this, you get dressed, you get your shower, you go to work, you do whatever you do at work. And we get into routines. You go to a restaurant, you know what you like to eat there. And so you order the same thing many, many times over and over again because you know, well, I like this. It's comfortable. I know I'm going to like it and I don't want to try to change and get something else. So we get into these ruts and these routines that make our lives, quote unquote, easy and simple. But we're not called to an easy and a simple life. We're called to a life that requires us to change, change everything about how we do things and how we think things, change the way that we think. God wants us to change our minds, to love him, to not love the world. God called us all in many different ways, given us unique callings out of this world. One man in particular had a very unique calling. His name was Herbert W. Armstrong. I'm sure we all know at least of him, if not know very well, have heard him and all of that. And God called him in a special way. Let me read a couple of excerpts from his autobiography, volume one. On page four, he writes, In the autumn of 1926, my wife said she had discovered in the Bible a God-ordained way of life, a way contrary to accepted Christianity. It became controversial. I was challenged into the most intensive study of my life. And so he began that study. He began to search the scriptures to disprove his wife that she was wrong, but he found a different answer than he was looking for. On page five, he writes, I found the revealed answers, rational, obvious answers to humanity's problems, troubles, and evils. Answers not found in science, education, government, nor religion. And I found that the very gospel, which means good news, brought to the world by Christ, had for 18 and one-half centuries been rejected or ignored by that world. How all this came about is the story of an experience as unique as it was heartrending and difficult to go through. For it became a battle against my own self and my very human nature. In the end, I lost that battle in an unconditional surrender. And so for the next hundred pages, he goes through the book telling of all of the things that he experienced that God brought him through to finally bring him to true repentance. On page 156, he writes, It meant being cut off completely and forever from all to which I had aspired. 
It meant a total crushing of vanity. It meant a total change of life. I counted the cost, but then I had been beaten down. I had been humiliated. I had been broken in spirit, frustrated. I had come to look on this formerly esteemed self as a failure. I now took another good look at myself, and I acknowledged, I'm nothing but a burned-out old hunk of junk. I realized I had been a swell-headed, egotistical jackass. Pretty hard words for anybody, especially to say about oneself. He saw himself for what he was. He realized this is what God sees. And he didn't like what he saw, and he knew that God didn't like what he saw. And he finally realized that. And that was when he realized the changes that he needed to make. He goes on to write, Finally, in desperation, I threw myself on God's mercy. I said to God that I knew now that I was nothing but a burned-out hunk of junk. My life was worth nothing more to me. I said to God that I knew now I had nothing to offer him. But if he would forgive me if he could have any use whatsoever so for such a worthless drag of humanity that he could have my life. I knew it was worthless, but if he could do anything with it, he could have it. I was willing to give him this worthless self. I wanted to accept Jesus Christ as personal Savior. I meant it. It was the toughest battle I ever fought. It was a battle for life. I lost that battle as I had been recently losing all battles. I realized Jesus Christ had bought and paid for my life. I gave in. I surrendered unconditionally. I told Jesus Christ he could have what was left of me. I didn't think I was worth saving. Jesus says, whoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. I then and there gave up my life, not knowing that this was the only way to really find it. He went through a heart-rending time. Physical trials that went on and on. And finally God brought him to that realization that this is what I'm like to a point where he unconditionally surrendered his will to God and said, I belong to you. There's nothing I can do of myself that's worthwhile. Only if you do it through me. Just as Mr. O'Gwen's comments talked about, we can't do it ourselves. If you think you can change yourself and make yourself into a good Christian, you're in big trouble. You're going to fail. You can't do it without God doing it in you. Just as the Japanese military and the whole nation was brought to its knees to have to unconditionally surrender, so also was Mr. Herbert Armstrong brought to his knees to a realization that he had to surrender his life to God. Is this something that you can say about yourself as you hear my words? Are thoughts going through your head that you say, this is exactly what I've gone through? I can't honestly say that I have really gone through such an experience as Mr. Armstrong did. God didn't take me through all the trials and tests like he did, Mr. Armstrong. I know that. I have gone through many things, as we all have. 
But he had a unique set of circumstances that God brought him through to bring him to that realization. Mr. Armstrong's autobiography is a wonderful book. If you haven't read it recently, I suggest you go back and read it. If you've never read it, look it up. You can find it on the Internet and read it for free, or you can probably buy copies on Amazon. But it's a wonderful book that you can look at, be able to read through, and see what God did in bringing this man to the truth and teaching him and bringing him to that point of unconditional surrender, willingness to give his life to God, to say, I want to serve you. If you can do something with me, have at it. But I know of myself, I'm nothing, and I can do nothing. Most of us here have been baptized We've received God's Holy Spirit. We understand that. But yet, we still are not doing everything as we should be doing. We made that commitment. We, we signed that contract, as it were. We said, my life is yours. But yet, we continue to break the contract. We continue to sin. We need to put that out. And if we will look at this concept of unconditionally surrendering our lives to God in a way that we maybe never have totally before, God will bless us and he will use us just as he did Mr. Armstrong, used him to do a powerful work to raise up this church in the end time. God isn't going to use me or you to raise up some work, I'm sure, but he can use us in many ways that we don't understand if we will give our lives to him. God's mercy and his love is greater than anything that we can really understand. We love him, but he loves us so much more. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to be a part of his family. If we will just surrender to him, give our lives to him, put our lives in his hands, he will forgive us. Mercy and forgiveness only comes through Christ's shed blood. That's the only way that we can have that forgiveness. Without his sacrifice, without what he did for us, we cannot have that. In my father, Roderick Meredith's article on total surrender in the October, September-October 2000 issue of The Tomorrow's World, he wrote, A genuine Christian must remember that he is not his own. He is bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So it naturally follows that he will strive to obey God fully. We will strive. Yes, we will strive, but we will still fail on occasions. He goes on to write, So it naturally follows that he will strive to obey God fully. A true Christian knows that Christ really is his Lord, his actual boss. This is the attitude God is looking for, total surrender to him. This is the attitude that will show God that unlike unfaithful Satan and his disobedient demons, you and I will always be loyal, having active faith to do what God says. Hopefully, we will come. We have come to this point in our lives, but we will continue to live this way of life, we will continue to surrender to him, knowing that we're going to make mistakes, knowing that we don't just have to do it once. 
because the point that my father made here in the article is that he said that I will always be loyal. Not just today, not just tomorrow, next week, next month, or next year, but always be loyal to God. We have to really continue to have this attitude of total and unconditional surrender to our God each and every day of our lives. From the time you wake up in the morning until you go to bed at night, he's got to come first and foremost in every way. We need to get up and pray and beg him for forgiveness every day. Ask him to forgive us for those sins, for the pride, vanity, lust, and greed, and whatever else that we need to be forgiven of. We need to repent of those. But we also need to ask him to help us to change, to help us to unconditionally surrender to him, to surrender our will to his will. We don't want our will to be done. Believe me, what we want to do is going to lead the wrong direction. We need to surrender to God's will in our lives. And Jesus Christ, of course, is the one that we look to that set the prime example of this kind of surrender, surrendering of our will to God. In Luke 22, verse 42, a familiar scripture I'm sure most all of us know very well. He said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was about to go through one of the most agonizing things that any man could ever have to endure. We can't even imagine what he went through. But yet he said, not my will, but your will be done. I'm willing to do whatever you want. He willingly gave up everything for us. Is that the kind of attitude that we have? Are we willing to give up everything for our great God and his son to be a part of their very family, even to give up our lives? We're living in the final times here, the end of the age. God's word tells us that we're going to have to go through some very, very difficult times before the end. Some of us are going to die and be killed, martyred for the truth. Do you have that kind of faith, that kind of surrender, that you're willing to do that and go through that no matter what the cost is? We better be. Because as Mr. Armstrong quoted, if we're looking to save our lives rather than to give us, we won't find it. What he quoted was Luke 9:24. For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We will find life, not physical life in these weak fleshly bodies, but eternal life as a son of God to live forever with him. Awesome calling, awesome future, but it takes work. It takes change in our lives. Giving our lives is not an easy and certainly not a natural thing to do. The natural body wants to protect itself at all else. Don't worry about other people. Protect me. Save me. That's human nature. We need to put away that human nature and put on God's nature. 
We need to be not self-willed and wanting what we want, but we need to be God-willed in knowing and wanting what God wants for us, what he knows is best for us, he will give us. He will. But we have to totally rely on him. Satan's going to make our lives miserable and difficult. We know that. He is after us constantly. He doesn't give up. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. Once again, a familiar scripture, but one that we have to remember every day. In verse 8, Peter writes, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Constantly, he doesn't give up. I liken it to being the, you know, the Satan energizer bunny. He just keeps going and going and going and going. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't rest. We need that. We're physical. He doesn't. He keeps after us day and night, looking to devour it. In verse 9, he goes on to tell us what to do. Very simple. Resist him. Sounds simple, doesn't it? I think we all know. It isn't that simple. Life's not that simple. Resisting Satan is very difficult because he's very sly. He's going to do everything he can to distract us, to get our minds off of God and onto self. Resist him steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Yes, all of us who have been called are going to go through these same kinds of sufferings. God is going to allow Satan to attack us. He will help us to resist him, but he is not going to stop Satan from attacking us because he knows we need that constant battle going on so that we can be strengthened spiritually so that we can one day be his sons. If we just cruise through life, Nice and easy. Just set it on cruise control and drive down the road. No problem. You keep it the speed limit. You're safe. You're not going to get a ticket. You just go. Life isn't that way. God allows Satan to attack us because he knows we need it for our good. But we have to be resisting him each and every day of our lives. Satan is the prime example of one who did not unconditionally surrender himself to God. He decided, I want to be like the Most High God. I don't want to have to do what he says. I want to be in charge. I want to have my way. And so as a result of that, we know the story. He was no longer Lucifer, and he fought God and was thrown out. And he despises anyone who does try to submit themselves to God, to surrender our lives to God. He despises us, and he's going to do everything he can to try to get us to not surrender, to break that surrender. And we do break it, but we know if we realize that, number one, we have to realize that we've broken that surrender to admit, confess our sins, Repent of them. And then God is just to forgive us. 
The Japanese surrender was unconditional. It was unconditional. I read that to you. However, it was not meant to last forever. That, conditional, that unconditional surrender only lasted for a period of time. The Japanese are no longer under the commitments that were made in that, in that document that was signed. However, for us, it is a lifetime commitment of surrender to God. It isn't just for the time being. It isn't just until we get to a certain point. We have to continue on in that every single day of our lives. We have to be loyal. And as my father wrote in that article, we must be always loyal each and every day. Jesus Christ said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit to enter the kingdom of God. If we're looking back at what we came out of, if we get ourselves sidetracked and look back and say, you know, it really isn't that bad. I'm doing okay. I can go ahead and do this or I can go ahead and do that. If we do that, Jesus says, you're not fit to enter my kingdom. You've got to stay the course constantly. Our eyes have to be fixed on what is ahead of us, on God's kingdom, the big picture, not looking back behind and seeing what we left behind. The Japanese cities of Nagasaki and Hiroshima were destroyed. The Japanese had to look forward to rebuilding and to, to what the future held. They couldn't look to the back. They couldn't live in the past. We have to be living for the future. They rebuilt their country. They rebuilt it into a great country, as we know, a very prosperous country. We have to be looking to the future as well, trying to build ourselves up to prepare for that future. But our surrender, once again, is constant. It goes on and on. We can't just live for the day. And as I said, we try hard, and we should, but we are going to make mistakes. And when we sin, we know this is, we, sh we have to look at our lives and say, this is me. I am a sinner. I need Jesus Christ. I need his sacrifice. I need everything that he has to offer. And if I don't give up my life for him, I can't be with him. I don't deserve him. And so we have to never allow ourselves to fall into the delusion that we have unconditionally surrendered our lives to God and that we can just move forward because we're never going to make another mistake. We're never going to sin again. We have to make sure that we're constantly on guard, constantly looking at our lives and saying, this is what I need to do. And when we do make mistakes, we can't let it get us down. We can't let it say, well, I just, I can't do it. It's too hard. I think one of my favorite passages sometimes when things are not going as I know they should be going in my life is Romans chapter 7. I don't want to go through the whole chapter, but if you read through Romans 7 and you see what Paul writes there about himself, here was an apostle writing these words. One of the greatest apostles wrote more than any man in the Bible. Romans 7:15 he writes for what I am doing I do not understand 
For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Do you ever feel like that? You know you shouldn't be doing it, and yet you find yourself doing it. It just keeps happening. That's what we do. You're not alone. The Apostle Paul realized it, and that's the key. He realized that he was making the mistakes. He said, what I know I should be doing, I'm not doing. I should be doing this and this and this, but I keep finding myself doing this over here. And so what did he say about himself? In verse 24, he wrote, Oh, wretched man that I am. He acknowledged that he was wretched. And that's the realization that we have to come to in our lives, that we are wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked and all those other things. But we can come out of that if we will realize it, if we will acknowledge it, repent of it, change our lives, surrender our lives unconditionally to our great God. We need to remember that God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us. He knows our thoughts. He also knows if we really love him deep down. And he will forgive us when we, when we sin and make mistakes. He will help us. But we have got to go to him, re-acknowledging that surrender that we gave to him. On page 167 of Mr. Armstrong's autobiography, he wrote... Although I had been beaten down and had made a complete surrender to God, giving myself to him, yet without realizing it, much of the self-pride and vanity remained. Here he goes through those 150 plus pages of that book, going through all these things, thinking he's unconditionally surrendered, and yet he realizes at this point that he really hadn't. He said, much of the self-pride and vanity remained. Of course, God knew this. He was yet to bring me down much lower. I was yet to be humiliated repeatedly and thoroughly chastened before God could use me. God is going to give us what we need. And we don't surrender our lives to him unconditionally. He's going to allow things to happen. They're not going to be fun. We don't enjoy them. But God does it for our good. As Mr. Armstrong said here, God humiliated him repeatedly over and over and over again to teach him lessons. As he said, he had been brought down. He had yet to be brought down much lower, much lower. Has God brought you down low? How low can you go? How low can you go in your life? If you think you've been brought down as low as you can go, you haven't been. I seriously believe all of us need to be brought down even more. We used to have a saying back in grade school when we were talking about, we talked about cutting other people down to size. And we would say, I'm going to cut you down so much, you'll have to look up to tie your tennis shoes. Well, I'm here to tell you that if you ha still have to look up to tie your tennis shoes, you still haven't been brought low enough because there are things lower than you that you can be brought down to.
you are still going to be big enough to look down on ants. Ants, you say? What do the ants have to do with it? Turn over to Rome, I'm sorry, to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6 talks about ants. Ants in the Bible. Proverbs 6, verse 6. He writes, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Oh, how long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. I'm sure most of us have read this scripture before. And we realize, well, there's, you know, there's some good stuff in there. We need to be industrious. We need to be working. But have you ever considered the spiritual application of this verse? What can we get out of it spiritually? Not just that we need to be physically working and we can't be lazy and sit around all day drinking beer and watching TV. Yes, we need to go out and work hard. But from a spiritual standpoint, what do you think? What about being spiritually lazy? Not praying and steadying. Think about it. Go to the ant, you sluggard. See what he's doing. He's working hard. He's industrious. He's praying and he's steadying and he's fasting. and He's doing those things that he needs to do. He's an example to look to. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler provides her supplies in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Do you see what it's saying here? This ant is a self-starter. It says they have no captain, no overseer, no ruler. No one's telling them, go out there and gather in your food. Go out and get a job. Go work hard. It says they don't need that. They just do it automatically. And spiritually speaking... We better be self-starters. I can't go out and steady and pray and fast for you any more than you can do it for me. You have got to do that yourself. You have got to make yourself do that. If I've got to call you up on the phone every day and say, Hey, John, have you done your prayer and Bible study today? Houston, we have a problem. I can't do that. And it wouldn't matter if, even if I did. You have to be a spiritual self-starter. Just as these ants didn't need a ruler to rule over them, we have to be spiritual self-starters. God wants us to do these things. He wants us to do what we can. As we think about these ants that were self-starters, and then it goes on to talk to them about, How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep? What does that sound like? Remember the parable of the ten virgins in Acts chapter 25? What does it talk about them? It says that they were slumbering and sleeping. Instead of being out, diligently working, getting their lamps full of oil, they were slumbering and they were sleeping. We can't allow ourselves to sleep and slumber spiritually. We've got to be those self-starters getting out and doing it diligently each and every day of our lives. Not saying, well, I'm, I'm just too busy today. I don't have time. Really, 
You don't have time for God? Well, maybe he doesn't have time to write your name in the book of life. What do you think? Should we make sure that we are doing those things that, so that our name is written in the book of life? That we're not one of those five foolish virgins who's left outside that gate? And Jesus says, who are you? I don't know you. Well, you know, I, I prayed and I studied, you know, pretty often. He says, I never, I never knew you. I never knew you. If we think that we're in good shape spiritually, if you think you're just doing okay, you're doing fine, I'm in good shape, I, you know, I do this and I do that, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. It's called pride. It's called pride. You're proud of yourself. Solomon talked about pride once again in Proverbs 16, 18. He said, pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before destruction. We don't want to be destroyed. We better make sure that we don't have that pride. And he goes on to say, and a haughty spirit before a fall. A haughty spirit. What is a haughty spirit? You think you're okay. You think you're doing all right spiritually. Mr. Armstrong saw that he was filled with pride, but it wasn't until God had thoroughly humbled him that it, to make him realize that he really wasn't doing as well as he thought he was. Earlier in the book, he thought he was doing pretty good, but he realized later on in his life that he still had way, a ways to go, and each of us still have a ways to go. If you were ready to be in God's family right here and right now, God would probably take you. He'd say, this man is perfect in all his ways. I'm going to take him, just like he took Enoch. You're still here right now? If you're still hearing me, then you must not be perfect. I'm still here talking. I guess I'm not perfect either. I know that, and we know that. We need to be working toward perfection, though. This haughty spirit is, as I said, it's a spiritual pride thinking that you're really in better shape than you are. Turn over to Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18 and verse 10, we read the story that Jesus is telling here about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this lowly tax collector. I am so much better than all of these people. Oh, I thank you that I'm not like them. I'm, I'm, oh, perish the thought. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all all I possess. You think you need to remind God of the things that you're doing that you should be doing? I don't think I need to remind God. I think he sees it. But he had to remind God, make sure God knew that, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm doing really good. And so he goes on, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I possess, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me. The apostle Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector's attitude is the attitude that God wants us to have. I think we know that. It's not an attitude that comes naturally or easily. Humility is not something that is part of our general psyche. The world out there tells us that we're all great people. Oh, you're, you can be anything you want to be. You don't have to have any humility. You can be whatever. You can be the President of the United States. God says we're to have an attitude of humility. And if we have that true attitude of humility, going to God and saying, God, I love you. I know I'm a sinner. I know I make mistakes. I know that I need to be surrendering my life to you more completely. But I can't do it alone. I need you. I need your help. Please help me. Please show me the things that I need to know. Give me the punishments that I deserve. But help me to be a part of your family. That's the attitude that God wants. Not that attitude of self-justification. Once again, you think, you think of people out there in the world. No one wants to admit that they've ever done anything wrong. If there's a problem, they always want to lay the blame on somebody else and say, oh, John did it. He didn't. I didn't do it. It was him. It was him. They don't want to take the licks, as it were, for what they did. They want to get out of it. And if they can get out of it, they can go on happily with their lives. At least they think they can. We have to admit that we understand we need correction. We make mistakes. And if we do that, we can move forward. And that will show God that we are truly humbling ourselves. And he will help us to surrender to him. He loves us. He wants us to be a part of his family. Mr. Armstrong said that we may think we have surrendered, but that unconditional surrender is not as always as unconditional as we would like it to be. I would love to be able to say, I am never going to make another sin again in my life. I'm going to live my life perfect from now on. I can say those words, but I know I'm still going to make mistakes. I'm still breathing air right now. And as a result of that, and a result of Satan out there working on us, trying, with us, trying to distract us, to get us sidetracked, that's what's going to happen in our lives. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have to continue through those things, giving our lives to God, surrendering him to him completely in all, every facet of our lives. God's going to correct us as we make the mistakes. We know that. Proverbs 3.12 says, For the Lord loves, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Yes, God will correct us. But if we take that correction in how God means it for us to help us, to shape us, and to mold us, he's, he's got a big chisel up there, and he's chipping off those rough edges. He's trying to shape us into something that is beautiful. Someone that can be in his family, in his kingdom, as his son. We love God. 
We want to give our life to him. We want to do whatever we should want to do, whatever it takes to be a part of his family. And that means unconditionally surrendering our lives to him. As I said, the Japanese had to sign that unconditional surrender. Another document went along with that, as I, and I mentioned it earlier, was called the Potsdam Declaration. And it laid out the points of their unconditional surrender. It said, here is what you are going to have to do. There were quite a number of points, and I don't have time to go through them all, but I just want to highlight a couple of them. Because if we think about these points that were given to the Japanese and look at them and say, this is the same sort of thing that we need to, in essence, inculcate in our lives in surrendering to our great God. The first point said, we, the president of the United States, the president of the national government of the Republic of China and the prime minister of Great Britain, representing the hundreds of millions of countrymen, have conferred and agreed that Japan shall be given an opportunity to end the war. That Potsdam Declaration was given to them before those bombs were dropped. They were given an opportunity to end the war, to not have to go through that. What did they do? They didn't take the opportunity. Our God has given us an opportunity, is giving us an opportunity to obey Him. He has put before us life and death. Deuteronomy 30. I don't have time to go through the whole chapter there, but it talks about blessings and cursings. And he said in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 30, See, I have set before you life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. God has given us a great promise. He's promised us blessings, the greatest blessing of all, eternal life, as one of his sons in his family. We just have to accept that surrender, just as the Japanese had to, but they didn't. And once again, we don't always surrender ourselves as we should. We break the terms of our surrender. The second point in that Potsdam Declaration talked about what was going to happen to them if they didn't. And he says, The prodigious land, sea, and air forces of the United States, the British Empire, and of China, many times reinforced by their armies and air fleets from the West, are poised to strike the final blows upon Japan. This military power is sustained and inspired by the determination of all the allied nations to prosecute the war against Japan until she ceases to resist. God is going to continue to work with us. He's going to give us every opportunity to change, to surrender to him. But if we don't, we're going to face the ultimate penalty. We're going to face death. We better make sure we accept that surrender that he's given us because as the third point of this declaration states, the consequences are not good and 
Well, let me just read it here. The result of the futile and senseless German resistance to the might of the aroused free peoples of the world stands forth in an awful clarity as an example to the people of Japan. The might that now converges on Japan is immeasurably greater than that which, when applied to the resisting Nazis, necessarily laid waste to the lands, the industry, and the method of life of the whole German people. Yes, they were warned, we're going to use everything against you. There was no mercy going to be given, is what it was saying here. Fortunately, our God has mercy on us. He's going to give us a chance, just as once those bombs were dropped on Japan, they were given an opportunity to surrender. But we have to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to break that surrender continuously and over and over and over again. The Declaration had many, many points to it, and I'll skip to the final one, the 13th point was we call upon the government of Japan to proclaim now the unconditional surrender of all the Japanese armed forces and to provide proper and adequate assurances of their good faith in such action. The alternative for Japan is prompt and utter destruction. God is calling on us, giving us an opportunity and telling us that if we do not surrender to him, we will face utter destruction. This world is going to see destruction unlike anything that we can imagine. The destruction at Nagasaki and Hiroshima are going to pale in comparison to what is ahead. Do you want to go through that time, that great tribulation, that day of the Lord? Or do you want to have an opportunity to not have to go through that? It's going to require a lot of work, a lot of hard work, because surrendering, changing our lives, the way we think, act, say, and do everything isn't easy. It isn't natural, but we have to do it. The Japanese did not promptly agree to the ultimatum. And they paid the price. They paid a great price. We have to make sure that we don't fall into that same trap of thinking that we're okay. They can, they can say this, they can say that, but I'm really okay. I'm doing fine. Don't let yourself fall into that trap. James 4 verse 6 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And humility is what is probably one of the biggest keys to unconditional surrender. We have to humble ourselves. And that is yet another thing that does not come naturally. It does not happen just that we want to humiliate ourselves, as it were, to humble ourselves before anyone. Mankind is proud. Human nature is proud. We have to get rid of that pride, and we have to humble ourselves before our great God, because if we don't, we're not going to be in his family. We're never going to submit ourselves to him. We're never going to live according to his will. We're always going to be wanting our own will and our own way, 
We're not going to be submitting ourselves and unconditionally surrendering to our God. For one final scripture, turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Here we see a little bit of humility being described here. In verse 1, Therefore, if it is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. If we cannot lower ourselves and to a lower level than the others around us, and we think that we are somehow better, we are not surrendering our lives to God. We have got to get that pride and that vanity out, and we've got to put on that humility. Jesus Christ was the most humble man that ever walked the face of this earth. He was humble. He was truly humble. He humbled himself, gave up everything, all the power and the glory and the majesty that there is in this universe, to be humbled, to be a mere mortal human being. We don't think of ourselves as being little, but in God's eyes, we are. We are mortal, and Jesus gave up everything for us. He humbled himself. We need to make sure that we do as well. We humble ourselves and we esteem others better. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. We must look out for the well-being of others. If we're just looking at ourselves and what I want and what I need in life, there's no humility in that. And so he goes on in verse 5 to say, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This mindset of humility must be a part of us. We need to remember that each and every one of us has to be living our lives in a case of constant and ultimate total surrender to God. Unconditional surrender. If we humble ourselves before him and we look to him in everything in our lives, giving our lives to him, wanting his will to be done, not our will, we will one day have the opportunity to be a part of his very family. If we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, God will help us. These are directly tied in with what we're talking about here today in unconditional surrender. Seeking his will, not our will. Seeking his kingdom, his righteousness, not our righteousness. We don't have any righteousness of ourselves. We must seek God's righteousness. So each and every day of our lives, as we continue on in our spiritual journey to God's kingdom, let's not forget that commitment that we made to him at baptism, that we gave our lives to him. We repented. We asked for his forgiveness. We said, we love you. We want you. We will unconditionally surrender our lives to you no matter what. Brethren, unconditional surrender is unconditional. It's just that. Let's make sure that we put this practice, this thought, this mindset 
into our minds each and every day of our lives so that one day we can stand before our great God and be a part of his family in his soon coming kingdom.